BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys, episode one. <coughs> 192, Haunted Landmarks of New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Good evening, and welcome to the Bowery Boys' ninth annual Ghost Stories podcast. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We've talked about dozens of ghosts since we started doing this back in 2007 hundreds if you would actually gather them all up (laughs) into one room and let's not do that for our last two shows we visited colonial new york and of course ghost stories of brooklyn for this one we are going big really big we are visiting some of new york's biggest landmarks searching out their spooks We'll be presenting legends of hauntings and other bizarre, macabre tales that are associated with the most famous buildings in New York City. Yes, indeed. All of these sites that we're about to visit are places that tourists frequent every day and probably have no idea of the supernatural tales lurking within. Now, of course, you don't have to believe in ghosts oh, no, no. to listen to these tales. Uh, these are stories, legends, lore that have been associated with these particular places. Some of these stories are decades old. A nice little way to experience the history of these places or perhaps to enter a portal into your nightmares. I do like the Halloween-y direction that you're taking us here, but I really think it's just an excuse for us to revisit Dunkin' Donuts on the corner, for we do have a plate here of... Haunted-themed donuts. Yes, seasonally appropriate donuts on a plate, some pumpkin-themed munchkins, and also some ales. And of course, over on the wall there, I have some illuminated spiders that are sort of dangling, (laughs) ready to leap out and jump on your face at any moment. Are those a new addition to this year's Halloween podcast? I haven't seen those spiders before. I might be collecting a nice assortment of Halloween decorations. We've been doing this for nine years, you know. Right. So on that note, Tom, I believe it's time to lower the lights. And lower your voice. Lower my voice and enter the realm of haunted landmarks of New York.
There once were two sisters, Janet and Rosetta Vandervorst. Sounds Dutch. It's an old Dutch name. They most likely were descended from Michael Vandervorst, who was an early resident of New Amsterdam. So a very old family. They lived in New York's Gilded Age in a mansion on 14th Street and 5th Avenue. Janet and Rosetta had very strict father. They came up in a very strict household. He refused his daughters to have any suitors, as a matter of fact. They were only allowed to go very few places by themselves without accompaniment. One of these places was Central Park. Now, during winter times, you could skate upon the ice back in the day. They didn't have an official skating rink, but people would actually go to Central Park and skate on the frozen ponds there. As legend would have it, I'm not really sure how old they were. They both died within a few months of each other in the year 1880. But Janet and Rosetta Vandervorst would not let death keep them from their favorite hobby. In the late 1910s was the first report of two women skating out in Central Park, wearing old-fashioned clothes, Janet in a purple, red jacket, Rosetta in a green dress and a velvet coat. These graceful figures would glide around and form figure eights on the ice and then promptly vanish. Wow, so these sisters are skating around on the pond. Which pond exactly in Central Park? 59th Street Pond, the one that's closest to the edge, the southern edge of Central Park. Right. You know, it really does freeze up to this day, although you, you can't skate on it anymore. But during the winter time, I suggest maybe taking a stroll around it and see if you could say hello to the old Vandervoort sisters. Now, I wanted to warm us up here with our story on the haunted landmarks. With really? Because I found that quite chilling. <laughs> it was. Because Central Park is one of the most popular attractions in New York. One of the most heavily trafficked areas of New York City, right? Absolutely. You know, we've told many ghost stories in the past about places that are like houses that are sort of off the beaten path or places that are private residences or places that seem like they're distant. In this podcast... We're going to be talking about places that are some of the city's most central sites. And so it's kind of astonishing that these types of stories would find themselves floating around these particular places. Floating around or perhaps skating around. Or skating around in the, in the case of Janet and Rosetta. Their spooky story, Greg, conjures up the photograph that you and I have seen, and we posted on the blog, of Central Park in the 1880s, with the Dakota apartment building rising up behind it. Remember oh, yes. this, this famous photo? That's a very famous photo, and it's a perfect image of the Gilded Age, and certainly doesn't seem like a scary place. Not necessarily. In fact, it seems today like a rather glamorous apartment building, and it indeed it is today one of the most glamorous in the city. And since it opened, the Dakota has been home to an exclusive roster of residents. But some of them, it seems, have never moved out. For this is the tale, Greg, of the children who never left the Dakota. <laughs> now, Greg, before I freak you out, and seriously, I can't wait to see your face when I tell you this story... Let's quickly review the history of the Dakota, shall we? Let's do. Now, we did talk about the Dakota in one of our very first podcasts so many years ago. That's right. 600 years ago, we <laughs> talked about Dakota. I think it was in the first 10, wasn't it? It was actually done before our first ghost story. So wow. I'm, I'm anxious to hear a recap of its history. The building was constructed between 
1880 and 1884. And the man who's responsible for constructing the Dakota was the head of the Singer Sewing Machine Company, a man named Edward Clark. It's interesting because Singer would be responsible for a couple major buildings、uh, here in New York, including, of course, the skyscraper known as the Singer Building, which was the tallest in the world. So they knew a, a thing or two about stitching and constructing、mm-hmm. buildings, <laughs>、uh, and construct city, time, the 1880s, the island,、uh, the There wasn't much construction happening up here. Of course, the land had been divided for decades up into blocks, and lots had been sold off, and there were some homes up there. But nothing big and grand on this scale had been built on the Upper West Side or here. Along the strip of Central Park West. So Clark hires the architecture firm of Henry Hardenberg to design this giant building for him, a commission that he took on with great fun and flair, and he brought together all kinds of eclectic architectural styles. I've seen it described as Gothic and also as North German Renaissance style. Some say that the the building looks like a town hall from northern Germany, a Rathaus. It has some of the same characteristics. And you can see some of that reflected in, of course, its younger brother building, which is the Plaza Hotel, which Hardenberg would also design, but much later, in 1905.、Mm-hmm. So the Dakota apartment building has ten floors, although only the first eight had apartments on them. When it opened, it had 65 apartments. Uh, ranging from four to twenty rooms, and these were lavish when they opened. And there were、uh, elaborate new innovations that were available in this apartment building because in the 1880s, apartment living was still kind of a new concept for well-to-do families. Yeah, it was kind of a progressive thing to do. And here they had a dumbwaiter system, so that you could send up meals to people directly into their apartment from the kitchen downstairs. Uh, it had its own power plant downstairs, a tennis court, a gym up on the roof. It had a lot going for it to to attract the wealthiest families in New York. It would be a resounding success when it opened, and Hardenberg himself would go on to design more hotels, like the Waldorf Hotel in 1893 on Lower Fifth Avenue, and then the Astoria Hotel in 1897, just next door. So this was at 34th and Fifth Avenue, correct? And so as the combined Waldorf Astoria Hotel, they were there well into the 20th century, right? And they would be demolished in 1929 to make way for the construction of the Empire State Building. But now we're way downtown. We don't want to be at the Empire let's, State let's Building. Let's go back, let's up, go to the, back、yes. up to the Dakota. Yes, far up. In fact, isn't that where the name kind of comes from? Because it was perceived as being so. In the wilderness, so far out west, that is an urban legend surrounding the naming of the building. But in fact, Clark, the developer from Singer Sewing Machines, was a big fan of the new western states that had been settled and the western territories. So no, it was named by Clark in appreciation for the state of Dakota, a salute of the、will. Dakotas.、Mm-hmm. So, who were some of the first guests at the Dakota? Who who braved the Western front <laughs> out to to live here at the Dakota? Well, wealthy families in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties, and then really took a turn for the arts in the early twentieth century and became a real who's who. Big names in twentieth century art, theater, and music lived here. Really big names like Leonard Bernstein had a very large apartment. Lauren Bacall, one of your favorite、oh, yeah. actresses, lived there. Of course, Judy Garland lived here. Boris Karloff, and of course, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, among many, many others. In fact, Yoko still lives there, even after the events of December eighth, nineteen eighty. 
when Yoko and John were coming back from the recording studio late at night, and John was shot four times under the arched entryway on the sidewalk entering his building. He was pronounced dead on the scene at Roosevelt Hospital. And in the ensuing days, thousands of mourners would gather in the streets surrounding the Dakota apartment building and then just across the street in Central Park. But this was 1980, right? Yes. So, But even before 1980, this building had a kind of ominous reputation anyway, thanks to a little pop culture phenomenon called Rosemary's Baby. Indeed. Twelve years before, in 1968, Roman Polanski set his devilishly creepy film starring Mia Farrow in the Dakota, although it would only use the building's extra creepy gothic ornamental facade and would be shot in the streets around the Dakota. Nothing was actually shot inside. So all of those interiors, the really sort of sad, barren apartments and the super creepy hallways and closets and neighbors' apartments, all of that was recreated on a Hollywood soundstage. That's not how it really looks, I can imagine. (laughs) Maybe at at its worst, before (laughs) she puts on her makeup, she kind of looks like that. The movie came out in 1968. However, already in the early 1960s, there had been reports of unusual things happening, spirits hanging around, uninvited visitors walking through apartments. Part of this could have been the fact that in the later 20th century, some of these very large apartments had been subdivided, you know, divided up to make them a little bit more economically feasible. The problem with subdividing these kinds of apartments is that you're sometimes, you know sort of breaking off and interrupting the flow of the apartment. You're you're just kind of throwing off the aura of the space, and you don't really know if that could have unintended consequences. Well, since the 1960s, there have been these strange reports, lots of odd sounds. You know, that's always pretty common, obviously, in a building like this with all those balconies and those turrets and, and those old windows rattling. But then you've got... Lights turning on and off on their own. Down in the basement, you have tools sort of flying off the shelves. But nothing out of the ordinary for a building of that age, maybe. Well, let me tell you about a a girl who appears every now and again. She's dressed in clothing from long, long ago. She's under the age of 10. She's been spotted numerous times bouncing her ball in the hallway as if she's looking for somebody to play with. But she's never with anybody else, and she doesn't respond to people who call out to her. She was once approached by a woman in one of the lobbies. There are four lobbies um, that you can enter from the courtyard. And a woman was waiting for somebody in the lobby when she looked over and saw this girl dressed so unusually. And, you know, like somebody had dressed her in vintage clothing from the 1920s, and she was just bouncing. She walked off into the other room, this side room off to the side, and the woman found it a little bit unsettling, and and went in to see if she was okay. She opened up the door, and it was just a closet, a very small closet. Nobody was in it. A few years after that, in the 1960s, actress Judy Holliday had just bought an apartment in the building and was preparing her apartment to move in. She hired three painters to get the place ready for her, and all three of them had uninvited visitors. Well, one of them was working in a a room painting when a 10-year-old who was dressed in a suit uh, from the early 1900s walked straight through the room, just leaving a sort of musty smell in his trail. 
Another was in a walk-in closet, a giant closet, and he was doing some touch-up painting. The door was closed, and suddenly the light went out. He fumbled around and, you know, he hit his ladder and was looking for the light switch and flipped it back on. And looked to see what could have knocked it out. There was nothing in there. Nobody was in there with him. But to his horror, suddenly his hand was grabbed and placed on the burning light bulb. But there was nobody there, and he ripped his hand off the bulb. Well, at this point, you can imagine that the men wanted to work together in Miss Holiday's Sure. So all three were painting in a large room together. When they all witnessed a man walking straight through the room, and his age was rather hard to tell because his body was that of, you know, a 20-something-year-old, but his face was that of a young child. At that point, they told Miss Holiday that her apartment was ready. Wait a minute. Go, go back to this man with a child's face. Yes. No clue as to who this might have been? No. And, and Greg, there are other stories. You know, there are all kinds of reports of, of odd things that happened in the Dakota's basement, in the tool area. Maintenance guys, electricians, they've, you know, many people have talked about odd things, odd sounds, tools flying through the air. One electrician in particular uh, reported seeing a short man with just a beard, no mustache, sort of tinkering around. By all accounts, his description matched that of Edward Clark, who built the Dakota. So it could very well be that Mr. Clark just never left home. Well, Tom, I'm pretty sure that you have given me a couple future nightmares with that particular one. So thank you. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. We're going to stay in the realm of apartment buildings, or rather apartment hotels. Mm-hmm. I'm taking us down to Chelsea. Well, I'm pretty sure that there are some men walking around with boys' faces in Chelsea, too. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a few weird faces in this story, actually, as we're going specifically to the most famous landmark in Chelsea. That is, of course, the Hotel Chelsea, or the Chelsea Hotel. Now, this building has been, like the Dakota, very important to the history of apartment living, to this new concept in the late 19th century, and also, like the Dakota, to the arts, because there has been an incredible concentration of creative icons that have stayed here. 
However, for every famous person who has stayed at the Chelsea, there are 99 others whose stay wasn't so famous, who may have tried and failed to become a creative star. It's a place that's filled with tragedy and mystery and even violence. And that's what the name of this story is, The Hotel of Horrors. The Chelsea wasn't always a hotel. When it was constructed in 1883, it was, as I inferred earlier, one of New York's first cooperative apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. It was a very innovative idea at the time and soon very popular with theatrical people because the theater district at this time in the 1880s was around Madison Square and Herald Square. It would eventually become a place for both short-term and long-term accommodations. And it opened, you said, in the 1880s? In 1883. Wow. So really almost exactly the same time as the Dakota. And shares a lot in common with it. Now, thousands of people have stayed here over the years, so there's bound to be a few mysterious stories and disturbing tales of ghosts, including those of very big stars. Now, we have a podcast on the history of the Chelsea Hotel where you might have heard us talk about Sid Vicious, who murdered his girlfriend Nancy Spungen in room 100 in 1978. Writer Dylan Thomas actually stayed here when he died in 1953. But he had been out, right, the night before? I think we talked about him being at a bar, another landmark bar that night. Yes, at the Whitehorse Tavern, he had drank himself into a stupor. But to clarify, he was actually already ill at this time. This just didn't really help things. And so he was staying at the Chelsea when he became incredibly sick, and he died actually at St. Vincent's Hospital on November 9th of 1953. Now, these are very tragic stories that are embedded into the walls of the Chelsea Hotel. But the more tragic, more disturbing tales actually come from those people that we don't know, that aren't iconic names. A great number of disturbed individuals have stayed at the Chelsea. I want to read a couple clips from old newspapers. Please do. Yes. The Greg is unfolding some dusty old newspapers <laughs> well, and some clips right here. Yeah. So... The first poor individual, her tragedy was reported in the New York Sun on February 3rd, 1908. The headline, woman who couldn't sleep, dead of morphine, leaving a letter. Quote, Ms. Elmira Wilcox of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was found dead in a room in the Chelsea Hotel on West 23rd Street yesterday afternoon. Unquote. Now, among her possessions in the room, they found a letter that was addressed only to a person named Deerheart. Okay. Uh -huh. So, in this letter... Deer, she, Deerheart? Like, like, her, like her, her dear heart. Like, you are oh, my to dear, her dear heart. My dear heart. Okay. But she pines on in this letter in a really mysterious fashion. Pines on about how uncomfortable she is in New York, but also keeps going on about this sleeping disorder she has. Quote, do not expect a bright intellectual letter, for I think I bought one drugstore last night, all but the shelving. And tonight I have taken two, and I'm writing you while I woo the sleepy god. Mm. Another excerpt, quote, will it ever come morning? This is the fourth night without sleep. The more I take, the wider my eyes open. I have a book, but if only I had someone to talk to me, unquote. Oh, how disturbing and sad. You have another story? <laughs> you think that one is sad. Uh, here's another unsettling tragedy, that of Italga Graf from the New York Times, March 5th, 1922. Quote, Ms. Atilka Graf, 
38 years old, severed her left hand at the wrist with a large pair of shears yesterday and jumped from the window of her room on the fifth floor of the Chelsea Hotel. At the hotel, it was said that Ms. Graff's daughter telephoned to the clerk that her mother had jumped out of the window. It was said that Ms. Graff had been suffering from nervous prostration and had been in a sanitarium. The severed hand was found in Ms. Graff's room. Now, there are actually dozens of these types of stories. The more you look into the Chelsea, it just has this really unique reputation for attracting people in mentally ambiguous states. Uh, There's actually two great books on the subject of the Chelsea that people should check out. Cheryl Tippin's Inside the Dream Palace and Ed Hamilton's Legends of the Chelsea Hotel. And they go into a lot more detail about these more unsettling episodes which have occurred here at the hotel. But these these are really tragic and sad stories. But are they hauntings? Are they ghost stories? Well, here's the thing about famous haunted places that the roots of these stories, of these scary stories, actually come from the terrible tales of those whose names aren't familiar to us, right? So the hallways of the Chelsea already feel somewhat otherworldly, if you've ever walked through there before. All the goings-on that have occurred here, all, all the raucous and scandalous behavior that's happened in these rooms. The most common feeling that people, when they experience some kind of supernatural event here, involves hot spots where they're, you know, they're nowhere near a vent or a pipe. As you know, in an old building, you'll sometimes feel a hot spot, but that's because it's a badly made building. The, the, See my apartment. <laughs> these hot spots make guests feel like they're in a sauna in the dead of winter. And it won't be just temperature either. It will be emotions, a sudden change of emotion. People will be immediately filled with dread or fear. Such is the case in room 124, which is one of the most haunted rooms at the Chelsea. No one's really sure what happened here. But it has been so emotionally disturbing that people will refuse to stay in that room. They will particularly say... I don't want to stay there because they've heard these stories. Well, one recollection is actually, this is from Ed's research from um, on his blog, an experience that someone had in this particular room. Quote, my friend commented on the couch and likened it to a couch that an old school funeral parlor used to prop dead people up so that they could be photographed. Well, we got to joking around about this and my friend decided to have me pose on the couch as if I had been murdered. Unquote. As friends do. Yes. Well, afterwards, some dark, gloomy cloud of sadness actually settled over this friend, the one who had made this suggestion. Quote, I've got to get off this couch before I start crying, he said, his face red and eyes full of tears. Something bad happened here in this room on this couch. I have to delete those pictures that we just took. It was wrong for us to have joked about this. I have to delete them to make things right again. Unquote. There's been a wide variety of ghostly spirits that have been identified with the Chelsea. One of them, the most famous, is a woman named Mary. She actually has a connection to the Titanic, which sank in 1912. In fact, this, many of the survivors of the Titanic stayed at the Chelsea Hotel after, after they had arrived. Oh, over on Chelsea Piers. Chelsea Piers aboard the Carpathia. Right. So Mary was either a survivor or a widow of a man who perished on the Titanic. She apparently paces 
on the fifth floor. Sometimes she's been seen on the eighth floor of the Chelsea Hotel. Some even say that she hung herself on the eighth floor of the hotel. People have seen her gazing into a wall as if admiring herself in a mirror, beautifully dressed, fixing her hair, done up really nice, maybe like combing it a little bit, rather indignant about people who are looking at her. She's even a little rude to the living who may be in the room with her. Now, some have claimed famous ghosts like Dylan Thomas and Nancy Spungen herself haunt their respective rooms, that Nancy haunts room 100. Sid Vicious, the ghost of Sid Vicious, has been seen getting into the elevator and just hanging around the, the front entrance of where the elevator is, even though no one has called for the elevator. So on Ed's website, which I encourage people to check out, ChelseaHotelBlog.com, someone actually cataloged the number of ghosts by floor. There are that many that they have multiple guests, <laughs> multiple ghosts per floor. Oh, yeah. There's a boy ghost dressed in the 1930s. I wonder if he knows oh, the, yeah. the, the girl of the Dakota. The boy ghost actually kicked a woman so hard that the woman then had a limp for the rest of the evening because of this spirit. There's also a depressed girl in a Victorian nightgown who wanders the floor beseeching people to help her and to listen to her tragic tale. But perhaps the most famous ghost at the Chelsea is most likely the least frightening of all the ghosts that permanently reside here. Well, first of all, his name is Larry. Larry, that is literally the least scary name you could have come up with. Maybe he's, is he mad that people don't call him Lawrence? Well, he's, he's annoyed. He's an annoyed ghost, let's just say. Uh-huh. Many of the longtime residents of the Chelsea Hotel from a couple decades ago, when they would encounter Larry, he would be a little bit more of a nuisance than a fright because he was known for being a loud talker. And in, in his living years or as a ghost? As a ghost. And not ghostly moans or the kind of horrific sounds that you might hear emitted from some kind of a specter. He's just like talking about the weather too loudly? Incessantly. An incessant talking, keeping people up at night. Is Even, he really a ghost, or is he just an annoying tenant? Oh, he's a, yes, he's, he's one of the most famous ghosts. He's even known for interrupting other ghosts who have been trying to send messages to people, that he will somehow disrupt them with his own tales of the afterworld. How do they even know his name's Larry? Does he have, like, his, is he, like, Laverne? Does he have a big L or his name emblazoned upon his breast? Well, I'm sure he's shared his name, like, many, many times over, yeah, right? True. I mean, that's, that's what, ghosts often share their name. It's, like, they, basically some of the only information they sure. do share. A meet and greet. Now, before I end the story, I just want to present a counterpoint, which is just to say that a lot of drugs have been taken at the Chelsea Hotel <laughs> over the many decades. Today, the Chelsea is being turned into a luxury hotel, like so many things in New York. In 2016, it will open. But I find it really intriguing that all these new residents are about to go into this building without awareness of all the old ones who still inhabit the rooms of the Chelsea Hotel. So we'll stay tuned. We have two more ghostly stories after this commercial break. Back to the ghosts. So, Greg, for our next story, I'm going to take us up to 42nd Street 
Well, more specifically, to Vanderbilt Avenue between 42nd and 43rd Street to a swanky little spot where today commuters can throw back a cocktail in style before catching a train at Grand Central Terminal downstairs. But sometimes those drinks are a little heavy on spirits. For this is the tale of the permanent guests at the Campbell Apartment. The Campbell Apartment. Well, that's a very elegant place to have a drink after work, certainly. Indeed it is. Um, It is a very swanky cocktail lounge that is located in Grand Central Terminal. And it's a spot that really is a throwback, a nostalgic throwback to... Uh, the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, it has and a speakeasy feel almost, doesn't it? Yes, everything inside is a throwback to another era, except perhaps the cocktail prices. <laughs> to talk about the Campbell Apartments, we need to tell the story briefly of Grand Central Station. Terminal, you mean? S- terminal, then station. Actually, depot <laughs> Depot, first. and then station, and then terminal. I think we made the same joke like <laughs> eight years ago when we did a show on Grand Central Terminal Station. That was episode 45. Yes, that we recorded back in 2008. But in brief, on that spot of today's Grand Central Terminal, Grand Central Depot opened in October of 1871. It was a giant station for the time. It was home to several railroads, in fact, at the same time, because up until that point, you had several different railroad sheds and depots lined up in a road. So here in 1871, finally in one big building, Grand Central Depot, you had the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad, the New York and Harlem Railroad, and the New York and New Haven Railroad. It also made it easier for passengers if they had to transfer from one train to the Mm -hmm. other. Now, remember that at the time, in the 1870s, 42nd Street would have been pretty far north, above where most of the city's activity was taking place. So, yeah, there were even there was even farms right next to the depot. And this made it easier for the railroads to buy up the land and to lay the track uh, going straight down the east side of Manhattan because land was cheaper. They'd come down to this spot here on 42nd Street with their trains and from there there would be horse-drawn carriages and and trolleys that, that would take passengers farther downtown and into the center of the city. The public transit of the day. As it was. So the depot would be around for a couple decades, but in 1899, the head house, which was, you know, the the main passenger area, Mm -hmm. which was just a bit of 42nd Street, and then the main building went up Vanderbilt Avenue there. In 1899, this head house was demolished and was replaced with a new, taller six-floor building, but the train shed remained the same. So it just kind of got a makeover, and Mm -hmm. this new building was called Grand Central Station. But now we're at 1900, Mm -hmm. and the city is booming, railroads are booming, things are really moving farther uptown from here, and the station needed more capacity, it needed more rooms for the trains and also for passengers. Right, it was completely inadequate for a city that was now developing above 42nd Street. So Grand Central Terminal, today's modern building, was constructed between 1903 and 1913, the designs were carried out by two different firms, Reed and Stern, who designed the, the station, the platform, the ramps and such, and Warren and Wetmore, who worked more on the design elements, and we've talked about them in numerous other shows. All the Gilded Age finery that, that the building is known for. And the, the engineers introduced into the building several innovations in design, for example, the ramp systems that keep the passengers uh, from needing to use staircase to get up and down into the, to the trains. But 
big innovation was electrifying the railroads that used the station, which allowed the approaching trains to literally go underground. They buried the old tracks for the first time because they no longer had to use steam trains. They could bury the tracks under the approach into the station, cover it up, call this Park Avenue and sell it off as really expensive real estate. The terminal, by burying its tracks, would really lift the fortunes of the entire neighborhood and send the fortunes of the Upper East Side skyrocketing. And oh yeah, we should mention the big family behind all of this, the fortune behind the New York Central Railroad, and that is, of course, the Vanderbilt family. Well, the name is on the street that we're talking about. That is correct. And Cornelius himself stands to this day in front of the station, I'm sorry, the terminal, looking at passengers, although it's a little bit hard to see because the elevated roadway sort of goes up and bifurcates around the station. But if you're taking a taxi up there, you can wave hello to Cornelius. So Vanderbilt, but who's Campbell? Well, Campbell was another rich dude. John Campbell, to be specific, was born in Brooklyn in the 1880s. He worked his way up in his father's finance company, Mm -hmm. rating credit and so on. And in 1920s, had so much money. He was the president of the firm. He was a millionaire and then some. He was on the board of directors of the New York Central Railroad and a major stockholder. And he was in the market for an office, a midtown Manhattan office. So with these connections that he had, not to mention his connections to the Vanderbilt family and, you know, New York Central Railroad, he, in 1923, after the new terminal had been open for a decade, rented an office space from the Vanderbilt right there in the southwest corner of the terminal. Well, that must have been huge. It was enormous. the, The office... Was And I, I don't even know if we could call it an office, but the, the, the space was 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and with 25-foot ceilings. It was this cavernous space. It was the largest ground floor office space in Manhattan at the time. It would make me feel uncomfortable trying to work in there. I'm just kidding. I'd love to work in there. <laughs> well, well, he changed it up a little when he got in there. In fact, he commissioned Augustus Allen to transform the room into a luxurious Florentine palazzo-styled office. So he didn't just keep it, you know, like cubicles and carpet. (laughs) Instead, they built out ornate stained glass windows. There's lovely intricate woodwork everywhere. Wooden beams across the top that were painted in Renaissance style. There was a carved wooden balcony placed in the top. On the other side, there was a giant fireplace. He added a pipe organ and a piano. Wait, why do you need those in an office? He had a butler named Stackhouse. It looks like something that's either a Medici villa or straight out of Citizen Kane. <laughs> this is the 1920s at the height of its roar. And Campbell and his wife would never live there. This is called, uh, a bit tongue-in-cheek, perhaps, the Campbell apartment. But this was his office, and he and his wife would host lavish parties here. They would hire orchestras, big names in music and in jazz, people who would perform either down on the floor, but sometimes they could perform way up, tucked away in that balcony, you know, so that there was just Mm -hmm. this music wafting down upon the crowd, walking around, mingling, having cocktails with a crackling fire, clinking glasses. Well, in 1957, Campbell died and his office was closed up. Most of the fineries were removed, some of them to unknown places. In fact, 
his enormous Persian rug that took up most of the space and had cost about $300,000 because it was one giant rug disappeared. Grand Central Terminal took back the space and converted it into significantly less glamorous uses. It was used as an office for the signalmen. The Metro North Police used it as an office, even a place where they would book petty criminals who they picked up in the station. They would take headshots, police headshots, in front of that ornate fireplace. Well, the, well, the organ music was gone by this point, obviously. And it just got worse over the decades. Fortunately, in the 1990s, Grand Central would start a massive renovation effort, and this would include renovating the Campbell Apartments. In 1999, the space was restored, including the ceilings and the walls, even that fireplace. They spent a million and a half dollars turning it into a swanky bar. So it almost seems as though the place had been a bar for decades, right? Because it matches the rest of the decor. Sounds indeed like the good old days are back. But I think some of the good old guests are back as well. Some of the guests and some of the waitstaff have have mentioned that a variety of unsolicited encounters have occurred to them while working or while visiting. The staff have felt a push on their backs, sometimes a tap on their shoulder as they make their way across the main floor or, or taking an order at a table, only to turn around and see nobody there. Others have reported hearing organ music playing when organ was not on the playlist. But some of these spirits have taken on more human forms. People have been spotted. They've been taken initially as patrons of the bar, but then, that's odd, they seem like they're dressed in more formal wear of, of another era. Even though you do have to dress up to get into the Campbell Apartments, absolutely no sneakers, no torn jeans. But some of these people have seemed like they were dressed straight out of the 1920s. A few years ago, a waitress was up cleaning after the bar had closed. She was making her way around. She noticed that there was still an elderly couple sitting together up on the balcony enjoying a drink. How had she missed them? So, and what were they still doing there? So she climbed the staircase to the balcony, turned around to the table but it was completely empty. They weren't there at all. And this is not an isolated incident. In 2011, a team from EPIC, that's the Eastern Paranormal Investigation Center, visited the bar and they took readings and shot video and such because there had been so many reports of this paranormal activity here. They found high levels of activity, especially in the upper areas, and especially around the bathroom. Why around the bathroom? Well... Just a few weeks before, one night in 2011, it's late in the night, and a, a woman walked into a bathroom, and, and she shut the door. And the next customer waited patiently in line behind her, and, and waited, and waited, and waited. Finally, the customer knocked. There was no response. The door was locked. It was completely locked, and nobody was responding. There was no way that they could open the door from the outside, so they actually had to hire a locksmith to come to pick open the door, only to find the bathroom completely empty. But it could have only been locked from the inside. So who's haunting the apartment? Is it John Campbell? Is it, a, is it one of his party guests? Now, perhaps you should just order yourself up a spirit and try to find out. Well, that'll give me another special chill next time I'm at the Campbell apartment, having a martini. With a boy-faced man. 
He may be occupied up at the Dakota. I hope he doesn't come down to the Campbell. And I certainly don't hope he manifests at the last landmark we'll be discussing tonight, the Brooklyn Bridge. You may wonder, how can a bridge be haunted? Because it's so busy, there's so much traffic, so many cars and people and tourists with selfie sticks. There's too much activity for it to be creepy. Well, you just have to look hard enough, for it is haunted with one very restless spirit. For the name of this story is The Bridge Over Troubled Waters. The Brooklyn Bridge is one of America's greatest bridges. Work started in 1869 and was completed in 1883, so around the time of a few of our stories tonight. Yes, everything seems to be in the same era. It was, it was a monumental feat of engineering. It required two sunken caissons in the East River, these massive cathedral-like towers, which of course create its beautiful silhouette today, connecting to a roadway for both vehicles and pedestrians and linked by thick steel cables. Now, in order to build the two anchorages on either side for the bridge, you'd have to clear away these whole neighborhoods, right? And so that is exactly what happened during the 1870s and 80s. And these are the neighborhoods that are at the bases, the Manhattan base and the Brooklyn Mm -hmm. Heights base. Yes. Now, the bridge has been marred with great tragedy during its construction. The designer of the bridge, John Roebling, died within the first month of its construction when his foot was crushed while at work on the Brooklyn side that caused an infection that did eventually kill him. His son took over the project, Washington Roebling. He too almost died because of the bridge. He was made gravely ill because of working in those compressed air chambers, Mm -hmm. those caissons under the East River. And he was afflicted with caissons disease or what we might call the bends today. His wife, Emily, did take over some aspects of the project because of this. But the end result in 1883, when the bridge would open after all of this tragedy and trials and tribulations, is a structure that that really dominates and defines New York. Oh, sure, of course. Now, not to then get really morbid about this, but these grand projects of the 19th century, like the railroad and something like the Brooklyn Bridge, they didn't have the same level of uh, protections for the employees back then. There were a lot of on-the-job injuries, many quite horrifying. And that's certainly what happened here on the Brooklyn Bridge. Between 25 and 40 workers died during the construction of the bridge, and most likely the number is much larger than that because those are just the ones that were reported for insurance and the ones that were reported in the press. And of course, there were many more people who had long-term illnesses because of the construction of the bridge, working in those caissons and just terrible injuries from the construction. Many of these job injuries were quite horrifying, quite gruesome. Certainly the worst took place on June 14, 1878, at noon. Let me read an account from the New York Times of this particular event. The headline, Killed by a Cable Strand. Quote, An accident occasioned by the snapping of a purchase wire rope that held one of the strands of one of the Brooklyn Bridge cables occurred yesterday noon at the New York anchorage of the bridge and resulted in the instantaneous killing of one laborer, the fatal wounding of another, and the serious injury of two others. The accident was over almost in the twinkling of an eye, but words can scarcely describe the excitement that followed it. Unquote. The workers that were killed in this accident, one was named Thomas Blake and his supervisor, Henry Supple. 
So they were working on the bridge with dozens of other men when a portion of this wire rope abruptly snapped, releasing not one coil of rope, but actually several strands and several pieces of equipment were hurled into the air. Several flew onto the land. So this was around the Manhattan Anchorage. So they weren't even necessarily over the water. It was very, very close to the water's edge, though. Several pieces of equipment flew over the land, and several of these wire ropes flew over buildings. One heavy piece, which was a tackle, what was called a tackle, smashed into a stack of rowboats that were just along the water's edge, smashing them to splinters. Another section of coil, hurled into the water, slapped the surface with a great sound that people could hear from blocks away. Yet another portion of this purchase rope cut through the air over the bridge so fast that workers couldn't move. The luckier ones were struck by it and were thrown 20, 30 feet, but they managed to at least land onto the bridge with just minor injuries. But not Mr. Thomas Blake. Again, from the New York Times, quote, Blake was flung into the air and he fell at the northern edge of the anchorage, receiving a blow that split his forehead open, causing instant death, unquote. Other reports claimed that the man was partially decapitated. His head was torn off by the wild cable. As for Henry Supple, his supervisor, well, that same cable cut to the air like a pistol shot, quote, tearing open his chest and knocking him backwards, whence he fell 70 feet or more into the graveled yard, a frightfully mangled, insensible, but still living man, unquote. Supple would die of his injuries. That is such a sad and tragic tale, and I can imagine that it was probably also quite traumatic for their co-workers who were out laboring on the bridge and who witnessed the entire episode. I mean, this is a brutal thing to have seen, right? I mean, ghastly. I mean, it would have affected not just the other workers who had to then go to work the next day at that same place they saw their co-workers died, but even the people who lived around the bridge were now marred by this horrible thing that they had seen. Now, the Brooklyn Bridge over the years has been the site of many grave and unfortunate events, attempted suicides, hundreds of people jumping into the waters of the East River, you know, many accidents over the years, of course, on the vehicular section of the bridge. But there's something about this event, this particular tragedy of 1878, there's something that marks the bridge so deeply. This story is actually at the heart of something eerie that people have reported over the years. Eyewitnesses who have been walking the bridge, you know, when it's not overly packed and crowded with a lot of other distractions, eyewitnesses have noticed shadowy figures on the bridge in sections where pedestrians are not allowed to go. There'll be unnerving pockets of coldness, even on a hot summer's day. People will see just these outlines of a disfigured being or an entity or something you know, walking along the bridge, walking slowly towards Brooklyn. You know, at night, sections of the bridge, even today, are actually quite dark. You know, I just, yeah. this past weekend, walked the bridge late at night, and there's still sections that can give you a little chill, especially around those cathedral-like towers, which really look menacing at night. So imagine, as you're walking along the bridge, and you walk forward, and you're by yourself, and you see a silhouette of an individual ahead of you. You walk towards it, it's standing very still, almost like it's waiting for you to catch up with it. 
As you get closer, though, you see that it's not a normal silhouette. It's a figure of a human, but a human without a head. This is the alleged ghost of the Brooklyn Bridge. Perhaps observing a bridge that he never got to see completed in his lifetime. The bridge which took his life. The thing is, though, as you, as you near it, as you near this apparition, as you get closer, in the blink of an eye, almost as quickly as that original wire rope that took the life of these poor workers, just like that fast, that twinkling of an eye, as that article said, this apparition vanishes. Like, did you see something? Was it just like your imagination or the trick of the lights of the cars underneath you? Or did you just witness the ghost of Thomas Blake? Have you seen Thomas Blake, Tom? I'm usually on a bike going across uh, the Brooklyn Bridge to get across as quickly as possible, still taking in the magnificent view, of course, um, and dodging pedestrian traffic, you know, those stepping into the bike lane. (laughs) Well, it's unlikely that you're going to see some kind of a ghost if you're speeding along on a bike. As a little aftermath to this story, Tom, I did a little digging into the life of Thomas Blake. Now, he was digging? just. I did a little research into the life of Thomas Blake. There's obviously not a lot. He wasn't, you know, he was a very young man. But I did find out two interesting pieces of information. Yes. One of them is at the time of his death, he was living in the city at 315 Broom Street. Oh. So that's essentially where the Williamsburg Bridge is today. And it would not have been there in his day and age. I believe you used to live down there, didn't you? Well, as did you. Yes. Yes. Uh, But then further research revealed that he lived by himself in the city, but he actually had a wife, Emily, in in Connecticut. And that's, in fact, where he is buried. Mm -hmm. I know that you cross the bridge often. Have you ever sort of felt any presence on the bridge? I walked very late at night on the Brooklyn Bridge. Just to creep yourself out. Just to creep myself out. I put in some creepy music on my headphones, Mm -hmm. and I might have had perhaps one too many beers. Mm -hmm. So so obviously I was like ramping myself up for an experience. Did not feel anything. And just, just, you know, just just the normal alarming number of tourists. But we encourage you, our listener, to head out to the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, to the pedestrian passageway, and to avoid the bikes whizzing past, and pay a visit to Mr. Blake. Do we know which end he's on? Well, he died on the Manhattan side, but having a spiritual form allows you to travel wherever you'd like on the bridge, I'm assuming. On our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com, we'll have pictures, of course, of these landmarks in the eras in which we talked about, all five of them, in fact. Join us as well on Facebook and on Twitter at Bowery Boys, where Greg has started real-time tweeting along with a couple of hit TV shows. Um, New York history-based TV shows, one called Public Morals on TNT, and of course, The Nick on Cinemax. We have a couple more ghost stories that take place at a couple more haunted landmarks that Greg and I will be sharing with our Patreon subscribers that will be released next week. And and I need to correct Tom there because for our Patreon members, we're going to have one ghost story and one story of aliens. (laughs) I didn't see that one coming. You're obviously telling the alien story. Yes. So, um, And Tom doesn't even know what that is. So, So if you're a Patreon member, you'll have that waiting for you <laughs> next week you can join us at patreon that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bowery boys and we thank you for your support 
So thank you for joining us for this ninth annual Ghost Stories podcast. Tom, do you want me to tell you something that's really scary? What's that, Craig? Our next one is the 10th annual. <sighs> well, on that frightful note, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.